Juan McLean is an internationally celebrated DJ, producer, and performer, in addition to being a ceremonial guide and space holder and sound director of Cardea Space. He has an extensive background in recovery from addiction and depression, and I'm proud to call him a dear friend. On today's show, we will cover some topics that are quite controversial in recovery communities. It is our goal to present modalities of healing in an accessible way. If this freaks you out, I totally get it. You might want to listen to a different episode today. Also, full disclosure, this episode has abhorrent sound quality as I recorded unexpectedly in the basement of a tattoo shop where it sounds like clowns are having a party. I did my best with the edit and it's still a little chaotic, but this conversation was too good not to post and one is a pleasure to talk to about a broad range of topics pertinent to sober sex. As always, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast, and if you love the show, even episodes with hot takes and horrendous audio like this one, please subscribe on your favorite streaming platform, share it on social media, or send an episode to a friend who might dig it. If you feel so inclined, maybe even give us a five-star rating. I don't know why, because we don't have advertisers. Uh, you're welcome. But I think it would be help me convince great guests to continue to have vulnerable conversations here on Sober Sex. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Juan. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm actually um, a little, um, I don't think nervous is the right word, but I was just, I'm still having a little bit of a hard time (laughs) interacting with people. Okay, interesting. Why? Tell me more. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's a good lead-in to, um, as I think you know, I was just in the in the jungle in Peru, um, like really out in the jungle with no, um, no Wi-Fi, no cell phone, a little bit of electricity every day, but also in silence for a little more than a couple of months, most of the time. So it's a and little, this was like a ceremonial excursion. Yeah, it was, um, it was, um, I'm always a little hesitant about how much detail I want to go into about this stuff, but it's, yeah, it's a facilitator training, basically. My teacher down there has um, a center that's basically a school <clears throat> for facilitators, ayahuasca facilitators. So you go there and you, um, starve to death and put yourself through <laughs> all kinds of trials That's and tribulations. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's not fun, but um, you know, it's a, a, a program, and, the, and there were um, like twelve other people 
in the program. And after the first week, apparently I didn't know a lot of this because I was in silence, but some people, a lot of people, you, you could choose to be social and speak. Um, but I didn't know any of this until two months later that in the first, within the first couple of weeks, you know, people were like, get me out of here. <laughs> and then in the last couple of weeks, people were definitely- And you were there for like two months. Yeah, a little more than two months. And in the last couple of weeks, people were definitely wanting to go home. And I absolutely did not want to leave. So I, I, I have a real... Um, it feels on brand. Predilection yeah, for like <laughs> deprivation and um, ascetic kind of settings. I mean, because you, prior to this kind of phase of your life, like you were going to India quite a lot, right? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be jumping around a lot, I think, about cool. things you're going to ask, you're going to ask <laughs> about it. later anyway. But I consider it all part of, I don't, I'm like still on the same journey from what I would call my kind of spiritual awakening of, um, getting it into what we call recovery from addiction, which for me started in 1993, which is making me feel very old when I say that name. And I I don't say that in a, in a negative way. Um, Although ageism is something I'd love to touch on too at some point. Sure. I'd be delighted. I mean, cause I, am definitely feeling very similar these days, like in terms of (laughs) like in next week, I'll be 17 years clean and sober. And I'm just like, wow, like I'm watching 17 year olds come into the room and I'm just like, damn, like you're my society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the trip. Yeah. It's, um, it's so interesting because <clears throat> then as a DJ, you know, I'm usually like in a room full of people where I look around and and it's, yeah, it's like not only, um, oh, I'm old enough to be these people's parent, which is fine. And I think that's actually a role that I enjoy inhabiting, but yeah, also that like, sweet. <laughs> like, oh, I, I got, I, I got into recovery before you were born. <laughs> 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 and I mean, you're just like, wow, like, I think, I don't know, it's a nice, it's it's good to, to feel good about it, though, you know, to feel like a good shepherd or something. Yeah, and it and it's definitely evolved quite a bit over the years, as we'll get into. But there is um, this inhabiting, inhabiting of this role that um, I, I, I mean, the term is I'm an elder. And it plays out in both the DJ world and, you know, the, I don't know, just call it the psychedelic facilitator world, which have a lot of kind of shocking parallels these days. I mean, I'm sure in any kind of recovery, you know, because I think you were, you were also an elder in that, in that universe, kind of pre-psychedelic experiences. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I keep trying and ground in this idea that it's like there are worse things to be, you know, like it's what a privilege to get to occupy that space, especially because I'm so bossy. <laughs> yeah. Like being in charge. Well, <clears throat> for me, it was before I went to the jungle this time, I um, I was really in this kind of crisis about 
like a kind of scarcity crisis around um, like this, this is what I've come up with as a framework of when I was really young, like when I was a teenager, everyone wanted to be in a band, you know, in the late eighties and nineties, it was like, that was the thing. Like everyone was in a band. And then that morphed into everyone being a DJ and now um, it's like everyone's some kind of psychedelic facilitator, at least in my, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of circles I travel in. Like now that's like the cool thing. And so my Instagram feed. psychotherapist be- life coach, I think. Right. Same. <laughs> also I'll, like a branch of that. Yes. No, I'll put those in the same category. So my Instagram feed, which you know, I, I tried not to look at very much became filled with, um, with all this, um, these like very young people, very outward facing young people who were, yeah, yeah. Like life coaches or some kind of facilitators. Um, and they'd be really good looking and young and well-spoken and they've collected lots of trainings and certifications. Then I'd look and see that they'd have like, you know, tens of thousands of followers. And I, and I was like, that's so wild. Like, how, how did people do this? And then I realized that um, they were fake followers. And it was just like the DJ world <laughs> all over again. Yeah, just the DJ world <laughs> all nightmare. over again. Like, I'm like, why, why? And it, it's, it's such a dark, um, manifestation of just everything that's going on right now I think in the world yeah that's it's kind of terrifying and heartbreaking but I mean let's let's diverge from that path and kind of talk about you know like when you were talking about when you started making music everybody wanted a band and then everybody became a DJ like can you tell me about your beginnings as a musician yeah I um I mean, really, my beginnings of, as a musician started, you know, as a a little kid in the 70s. And um, I wanted to play guitar. Like, I was super into Kiss, you know, the band Kiss, <laughs> which seems ludicrous at this point. But this was the 70s, you know, and, and who else was cool. going to be into <laughs> Kiss except for, like, uh, you know, pre-pubescent boys? Um so I was like, man, I want to be, I want to be cool. Like the guys in kiss. Um, so I wanted an electric, <laughs> my parents, my parents got me like a crappy nylon string acoustic guitar. And, 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 and I started taking lessons with the woman who would sing in our church. Cause I grew up in this very Catholic, a very Catholic. <laughs> you were like, this is it, not what I meant. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. And it was the seventies. <laughs> there was this thing where they have the, like, like folk, you know, it's like folk music in church. So I started playing with my teacher in church, singing like literally like Kumbaya and Michael roll, roll your boat ashore and that kind of thing. And that's how I got my start. <laughs> and like oh, that's beautiful. Playing guitar and, like, and then we'll pivot, the harsh pivot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, like, drugs enter the picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, then very shortly, like, you know, I got into like punk rock and 
punk and hardcore. And um, that, yeah. And then I was like, I, that's what I do. That's just what I'm going to do. And then I started, you know, working at jobs. I saved up money, got an electric guitar. Um, yeah. And by the time I graduated from high school, I taught myself to play guitar and I was just like, I just want to be in a band. That's it. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me that you like, like all of the stuff around whatever stupid system you were supposed to go through to be in a band and be successful or something like I had no regard for, which I think was one of the great things about that kind of like punk rock, hardcore world. Um, I mean, and so also I, I feel like it's kind of an energy that you continue to, <laughs> yeah, you continue absolutely. to carry. No, my whole life. I very much appreciate about you. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going to do this one thing and I just do it. <laughs> but they, um, yeah. And then I made this little, this band, which very quickly got signed to Sub Pop, which seems so improbable, really. It was like we played at South by Southwest when it was still actually a college music thing. And um, <clears throat> the guys from Sub Pop were there and they were like, do you have a demo? And like, yeah, we have these cassettes. We gave them one. I don't know. Maybe they wrote us a letter or something or they were like, do you guys want to be on Sub Pop? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah, we do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And oh I kicked God. off my, uh, my, yeah, that, that, I mean, you know, I, I was like 19 years old. So I had, I did not know about that chapter of yeah. your life. And I wonder like when did kind of like as that was happening you know kind of making a what was the beginnings of a career in music like where did drugs enter the picture was that kind of already on track um it actually wasn't because when i was in high school and super into like the boston hardcore scene there was this um i mean there was this funny like straight edge thing you know like which was really confusing at the time. <laughs> it was like, there were a lot of really confusing things about it, but I, I kind of like fell in with that and it wasn't like a very, wasn't even a very considered thing. I, I, I it, it was really kind of a social thing because it was like the kind of like jocks and popular kids in high school that would drink and go to parties. And I just like me and my friends thought that was the peak of stupidity. So it was like our way of, yeah, like our way of being cool was like not to drink or something. Um, so then how did that kind of transpire? Yeah, it... Um, it's funny because it's really like music is kind of the gateway drug for me. In the same way, you know, there's a narrative there's one kind of, there was a sort of conservative narrative around um, cannabis that like, that's a gateway drug that, you know, you start smoking that and then you'll be smoking crack in a week. In a week. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and somehow that, um, that in the sort of like world of people who take drugs, it was, it was considered a very silly story, but I actually believe it's totally true. Like it doesn't, and that's not even <laughs> You're like actually in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, that's not even to disparage cannabis. Like I, I think it's a great plant for people that can use it. Um, but it yeah, is but a stepping stone. For those of us who can't, 
yeah. it's definitely a stepping stone to something, you know, and it, um, but in a sense, music was that way for me because it was when I started playing music with people. And then I don't remember, you know, there was just something about like the way like smoking weed worked with music. And for me, pretty quickly, it was playing music. So it, like we'd get together and get like really stoned and just start playing music and like get totally lost in that. I mean, really, it's, you know, getting into this flow state of like playing, improvising music with people in a room. And if you're, and of course, I know all this in hindsight now, but if you're someone who's like in an enormous amount of pain, like I was, then, you know, which I, I would say like a lot of traumas from my childhood, like capital T trauma and small T trauma, as we call them. If you're in that much pain <clears throat> and then you take something and it makes the pain go away, just as, just as an animal, any animal, <clears throat> How how or why would you not go back to that thing over and over again? And that to me is, that's kind of the crux of addiction for me. It's like even, I, you know, and I very quickly moved on to shooting heroin, which, um, like it was a pretty quick transition. But I knew lots of people who were shooting heroin who never had a, actually had a problem with it. I mean, you could say it's problematic just to do it in the first place, but they just did. They just, that just didn't happen. Yeah. They, that just didn't happen yeah. for this controlled substance. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't, I mean, this is also, I think a fundamental thing of 12 step programs that gets lost in messaging or ignored of not, um, like, I don't blame the substance. Like, this whole business of, like, oh, if you smoke crack once or take heroin, you know, yeah. you, you're you're playing with fire because you might be dooming yourself to a, a, an immediate life of addiction. Like, blaming the substance in that way. Yeah, if you're primed for it, that's... I mean, if you're an the, alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be just about anything that gets you there. But if you're not, then it's, it's probably not going to happen. <clears throat> I mean, they talk about, I think it's more within the culture of 12 step than it is necessarily around like the culture of, of the, the actual kind of foundational teaching, the teachings of, of recovery literature, et cetera. Because there is like this idea, like there are those who can drink and use the community. But yeah. like, if you're reading this, you're probably not one of them, you know, like if, if you have the need to stop, then it's probably a large enough problem in your life that, um, that you're not one of the, the the types who can have the, you know, that, that what is it dubious luxury of other people. Um, and so I wonder like, you know, the, the questions here, are like how did music enter the picture? How did drugs enter the picture? And then how did you eventually get clean and sober? Cause it sounds like the music plus the drugs was like a transcendent experience that really like it was aspirational and that it's like what you kind of got like, clicked into at a really young age and then kind of were able to essentially have this like stroke of an incredible grace with getting signed by, by a legendary label at a young age. 
and then you know kind of drugs and this like at least smoking weed and playing music is like transcends an experience that stops pain swiftly escalates and then kind of well how did it unfold i'm glad you brought up the word transcendence because that to me lately i've really been thinking about this a lot is um it is the search for, for for transcendence and it's when i think about it for me at the time it was it was transcending pain just the pain you know of an activated nervous system that never recovered from childhood stuff um yeah so it's like i had so little regard for my own safety or life in general. Um, The only thing that really had any meaning for me actually was music. In a sense, yeah, playing music and listening to music was providing the same kind of transcendence that I was looking for, that, that I was getting with drugs. Um, and they were very intertwined. Um, yeah, that's actually... Did they ever conflict? This is really hard for people to understand, but when I got clean, it wasn't because... Um, it wasn't because I was afraid I would die. Like, people around me were constantly having these kinds of interventions where they'd say, you know, we're afraid you're going to die. And my response was always, I thought I was helping people to feel better by saying, if I do die, know that that's okay. Like, that's, that's what I want. Like, everything, everyone will be better off, including me. Um, so that, that part didn't bother me. But it was when I felt like music was being taken away from me that I... Um, that's when I was like, <laughs> got serious about getting clean. Cause it was basically like, you know, after a long tour, um, being dropped off at home. And I guess this had been saved up for the moment that I was being dropped off at, <laughs> at home after a tour. I was told by everyone in the band and my friend, Kurt, who was also the other sort of junkie in the band who died shortly after of an overdose he um we were both told you know we're done we don't we don't want we're not doing this with you guys anymore because because the touring had become ludicrous with all the things you yeah like all the things you can imagine like the cliched like the police coming like people overdosing people dying like it the like disappearing for long periods of time and and everyone wondering if we were going to show up for, for gigs and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was when that was, um, there was a threat of that being taken away. That was the thing that I was like, I, I can't, I can't live without that. Like I can't live without playing music. I, I, I'll live without anything else, like literally anything yeah. or die. Like it's all fine. But to have music taken away, that was like the thing I couldn't, I couldn't imagine going on with. Bear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Cause I remember 
like in getting sober as like a coked up 20 year old (laughs) everyone around me was like please don't be a dj and i was very like dead sets on it but i also remember i must but i must (laughs) and and that idea of like needing to kind of clarify like well actually what i'm what am i getting out of this that i that what will it be like without drugs or like what makes it worth it to do without drugs and like i do think that the it's been a good bargain so far you know like to use that position of get like actually getting the dream, yeah. getting to live it like a, oh. in this career as a sober person. Uh, it's, it's been oh, it's man, worth is... it, you know? So, I mean, this is not that question. Um, just, just to ask you quickly, what are your pronouns? Cause that's a classic sober sex question. Oh yeah. He, him. Cool. And what's your experience of gender today? <laughs> um, Hmm such a big question um it's something i've actually been thinking a lot about lately especially in the um kind of framework of capitalism that i think is destroying the human race at this point um you know i grew up in this very um I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative, it's kind of like South Boston, Irish Catholic world, uh, um, where I would say like things like gender roles were incredibly traditional. um, And especially... In hindsight, and I think this actually contributed a lot to um, the lead up of addiction for me, was, um, I mean, these things like gender, there's a huge component of gender that's cultural. And growing up a super sensitive kid who had um, like people always thought I was a girl when I was a little kid. Like I always had really long hair and I was pretty, what people would say is like effeminate, like sensitive, shy kid. But I grew up in this environment that was really valued, like being tough and fighting. You know, actually like I played hockey because my father wanted me to play hockey. Like that was a big deal. And like in Massachusetts, hockey is such a big thing. And, um, and I was so like not cut out for this stuff. Like I really didn't, it seems like a silly thing to say, but I really didn't like fighting. <laughs> like, that was such a big thing growing up in school at the time. And my family moved a lot, like, at times like every year, every two years. So it was always this thing where I'd have to show up at a new school and be the new kid in a school. Um, And everything was so gendered back then. It it still is now. But I, um, I did, I, I experienced so much of this expression of, I mean, what we would call toxic masculinity, I guess now, um, 
like, and now I realize how activated, like how destroyed my nervous system got by this stuff, by this bombardment every day of like, not, not feeling safe as a kid. Um, feeling like I always had. And the messaging of like what you needed to be in order to like be safe. You're like, I am not that. Yeah, absolutely. And it was like, um, how do you be safe in those environments? And the, and the way that I was raised was like, you know, like we had boxing gloves around the house so, and like, so my father was like always teaching me to fight. Um, yeah. Things like fighting, being tough. Um, any, but I was a, a really sensitive kid who, who needed this, um, to just to be held in a much more feminine way. And that was just not available. And that I, and it, and it really took me like a lifetime to figure this out um, of how damaging that is and how, and, and I really view a lot of this stuff with addiction, especially um, through the lens of the nervous system. And if your nervous system is, that activated it never recovers from these i mean they're traumas um that we don't consider i think even now enough of being like being a kid who doesn't well back then anyway like being a kid like me who like with like long blonde hair and it in a wearing like a, a a big kiss belt buckle, you know, and like with this confusing mix of stuff. Oh man, the doorbell's ringing. Cool. I'll pause it. I'll bring we'll bring it back right there. Yeah. <laughs> Got a new bed. All good. We are back. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> um, so you were saying, um, you know, to be like a little kid with like long blonde hair and a kiss belt buckle. And then yeah. to kind of be thrown essentially to the wolves of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy sums it in up. the environment yeah. that you grew up in. That sums it up. Yeah. It's, um, it's also, there's a, if, if that's the shadow side of that experience, there's also the kind of gift of it was that it, um, it just, it made me retreat further and further into these um, like the sanctuary, social sanctuary of like alternative music groups. Um, I mean, there was a kind of tribalism back then that I don't think exists anymore um, where there were pretty defined when I was growing up, there's like pretty defined groups of, of people for better or worse. There was like, sort of like popular kids in high school and then like jocks and whatever. And then there was just like the few weirdos. Um, and I mean, I'm so grateful that I didn't, was, but you that I was not, well, more so that I was not, uh, I was not welcomed into that other group. And I was not like any kind of like, um, 
Like I was never really, like I was never picked on or anything like that. Like I kind of got along with everyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad I'm not working in a bank. That would be a nightmare. <laughs> Truly. I mean, and, and it also sounds like because you did find this thing that essentially would save your life. Um, how, so when you kind of identified that you couldn't live without music and that you would, you would be willing to stop drugs in order to, to not die <laughs> essentially. Um, like how did you eventually get clean? Yeah. When, um, my band six finger satellite signed to sub pop, we actually had, um, a manager at the time and she, negotiated she insisted that they give us health insurance which is genius. something that genius no management had really done back then yeah and then it was i think we were like on tour when that kicked in and um so one of the first things i did was get into a, um actually a private detox not the ones that the ones that were run by the state were like basically prison i mean they were actually at the prison um, wow. so it was pretty that rough horrible. but this i got to go to a yeah it was really unpleasant <laughs> but it, it um it so i got to go to this pretty nice hospital and they were really super backed up. So it's one of those things like, you know, you're calling thinking like, I need to go there to tomorrow. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we, we'll probably have, yeah, we'll have beds opening in three months. I think it was three months. It's just like how, you know, like that, I, I don't know if I'm going to be alive in three days. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So they were trying out, and, and I realize how fucked up this is in hindsight, but they were, um, at the time I had no idea. And, and especially because of the, you can imagine the power dynamics of something like this is the, what they said was, um, there's a, this new kind of treatment that we're trying out for detoxing people off of opiates. If you want to do that, we can get you in now. <clears throat> so I was pretty desperate. It was, it was, um, I guess the precursor to all of that, like that, that stuff, I'm not very up on like the mechanisms of how they work, but it was, um, naltrexone, which is an opiate antagonist. So they give it to people, um, like I was on it on a maintenance basis after. So you take it and it's an opiate receptor blocker and you can't get high if, if you take an opiate, but if you're detoxing from opiates it basically my understanding was it you know detoxing is a little bit of a gradual process where um you know you you you, you stop the substance and then it takes 24 hours or so for you to really go into the worst part of withdrawal and this was um a way to send to shorten the withdrawal period theoretically, but it would just instantly send you into the worst of withdrawal. So the thinking was, yeah, the thinking was, oh, you'd have a, 
a few days of real hell, like it would be the most intense withdrawal, but that it would be over very quickly. Um, so I did that and it was absolutely a nightmare. Like it was a, just an incomprehensible nightmare of just being in so much pain. Like I just could not even sit still for days on end. Um, and about the third day into it, I, I was, I was going to kill myself. And I thought, well, I thought this was a really good plan. Like I went to the people who work there and I was like very calmly, like, I think I have the answer. <laughs> I got it. You know, like I just shouldn't be alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I just, which I just see wanted to die. <laughs> which, which then got me into the move to the other floor, the lockdown, um, the lockdown facility, which was a whole new level of hell. Um, yeah. And that, but it, that detox was brutal. Like it really, I mean, honestly, it was, it was traumatizing. Like just the brutality of the combination of the kind of how severe the withdrawal was coupled with, I, I'd say like the, the perspective of, the people who worked in the place, which was bordered on contempt, mm. I would say. Um, no, they they weren't. Yeah, I remember a woman who worked there saying something to me like, um, like very sarcastically, like, yeah, you don't think we all want to be back in the womb? Like, <laughs> Oh, my God. I mean, it's like. like, like it, it was this kind of thing. So like, cruel. Yeah. And and then they'd had to give me so much, um, some benzodiazepine. Um, I forget which one, because I was in so much pain that um, they just had to chill you. At out. one point, like I was spending a lot of time in this hot tub kind of thing. Yeah, because I, I just was in so much pain, so I'd sit in this hot tub thing because my joints, my whole body ached so bad, and um, and I actually passed out in it because I was so also pumped up with, I forget, Librium. That was, was like Librium, yes. <laughs> Their favorite. Yeah, Librium. I don't know if they have that anymore. I don't know. They had it when I was I know it was, like, it was just <laughs> such a mess. Such a mess. And then, you know, they, they meanwhile, they're dragging you to AA meetings and stuff. And I think when you're dragged to them, um, it's really tough. And I didn't relate to the stories. Like I remember just this guy going on this really, I don't know if people still do this kind of stuff, but back then there'd be this kind of dude. Well, this was in Providence in the city that would go on about these like kind of horror stories about their addiction for when they were speaking, this is what the speaker would do. And they tell these stories for about like one atrocity after another. And then at the end they'd be like, you know, then I found the program and here I am. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't, none of this speaks to me in any way. I'm not, do, I'm just not doing this. And then. So how did you kind of, yeah, transfer, transfer out of that, yeah, that space? I got sent away to a, I got, I got sent away to a long-term program. Um, I mean, I think it was like nine months or something. Uh, residential program and 
by the end of it, I was a convert. I was like, I, I'm never doing any drug again the rest of my life. Like, this is amazing. I, I, I still was pretty not functioning well, but it was the first time I had been clean, like in years and, and, and just free from that, that cycle of having to get high every day. And I, I was, you know, I, I was absolutely knew that I would never do a drug again the rest of my life. Then I was out, I got released. And I think like my, my, my girlfriend at the time, like she had to work that day. So I like went home to her apartment. I didn't have any, anywhere to live and I was going to stay with her. And I made an excuse to borrow her car. I, I was home for like three hours before I had like broken into a dealer, like an old dealer's place. Oh, wow. And literally <laughs> after got nine high like on his bed. Yeah, after nine oh. months, like literally like got high in his apartment, like found his drugs and like got high in the apartment, was like nodding off in this guy's apartment. And like it was, it, it was pretty bad. Um, and that really bewildered me. I was like, I don't even know how this happened. And that's when I was really, that was like the last resort. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try. I actually don't know what sort of put it back on my radar, but that's when I went to my first NA meeting. And right away, really, I don't know if I'd be here now if it weren't for um, just an older guy that was there that like, you know, there's always like just these cast of characters that it's like the same kind of people that you'd see like on the street kind of things. Like, oh, this is a guy that was selling me drugs, basically. And now here yeah, he it's is. Yeah, graduate school. <laughs> he was older, like, yeah, he's like a guy in his 40s. He just seemed, he just seemed fine. And he was like, he just said to me the most basic, like, look, like, I know where you're at. Like, I, I've been there before. And he just said, all I can tell you is if you just do this for a little while, it, things will get better. And that sounds so basic, but at the time it absolutely saved my life. So I started, yeah, just, I started going to meetings every day. Um, and really was like, if you want to say I was brainwashed, then that's exactly what I, I needed at the time. Like I, I bought into it every 100%. Um, and it worked. You know, I got an apartment I mean, by myself. Yeah, and it worked. I got a job. I went to meetings every day. I only hung out with people in meetings. That's all I did. I'd go to work. I'd go to a meeting. Then I'd go home. And it was incredibly painful. It was like, it, I, you know, there's still this long, long-term way of your brain i think chemistry just trying to get back to something mm. so i still felt like super uh i mean when you're high every like all the time for so long you just it takes a long time to get back to sort of baseline, baseline. reality yeah totally yeah i mean and also and that's, that's what i needed like how did, you know, kind of from this, like, you know, meeting every day, kind of like little sober life, like how did that kind of unfold into the place where you had more and more freedom? Yeah, I think it was, I think a big part of it 
actually, which is why I still believe for a lot of people, that's just the best thing we have (laughs) is because there's just no way around. You need to put time between you and being in those altered states and it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. Like there's just no way around. You can't bypass the discomfort. And I think we don't, we don't like that in especially present day society. Well, and you talked about capitalism before. (laughs) Yeah. And capitalism we are, is built on marketing us, um, pleasure basically and avoiding any kind of discomfort and and the message is anything you want you can have and i really think this this is a time when you're coming out of addiction like that where it's like you just have to be in discomfort for a while and know that you'll come out of it and you'll be in such a such a better place i i at the time it actually was easy for me to conceptualize because I knew that like even chemically I had been pressing the pleasure button for so many years, you know, and that in all of nature, there's always, you don't get anything for free. So it's like either pay the price now or I have to pay the price later, but there's a price that needs to be paid. Um, And then the day came at some point, maybe, you know, like, three to five years into this where it wasn't like I I wasn't thinking about getting high every day all the time. Like I just forget about it for periods of time. And then that eventually morphed into, I just, you know, just really not thinking about any of it. Um, I forget that that's a miracle, you know? Yeah. I mean, to be able to forget about it. Yeah, and it doesn't just happen by sitting around either. Like I think addiction is, or the behaviors of addiction are expressions of something. And if you don't address what those expressions, you know, what what that underlying driving force is, then you're just fighting something your whole life that you, you're probably not going to win. Which is the point yeah. of, and there are many avenues to get there, but that's really supposed to be the point of doing things like the steps. Totally. I mean, and also, like, I'm curious as to kind of how, if we're, if we're talking about that, you know, the kind of causes and conditions, or, you know, it's like there's a kind of couple routes to answer this question, like what happens to your mental health after you get sober, and then kind of how did you make choices to kind of further your recovery or this part of your journey, your, your spiritual evolution, essentially by kind of like taking the psychedelic route. For me, um, well, there was, for me personally, I was always incredibly depressed being in recovery, like coming out of it, of course, like coming out of something like opiate addiction, like you just feel very chemically depressed for lack of a better way to put it. It's like, I could just feel my, I felt like I was just the living embodiment of depression. And then I, I, I guess this still is the answer, but back then the go-to thing was um, 
antidepressants, which I, I took, I started taking, I think like five years to being clean as really as a last resort. Cause I felt not so much suicidal, but like every day was kind of a, it was just hard to even get through the day. Um, and actually antidepressants worked for me in a sense, like it did lift my mood, but the, the, um, the side effects were horrible, like really kind of took over my life. Um, and then I wondered about the long-term effects of taking them. So after being on them for a few years, I stopped and, you know, like you said, like I, w- I was so deep. One of the first things I got into being in recovery was Buddhism. There was this book a Providence guy had written called um, Zen and the Art of Recovery. And there was a Providence Buddhist Center, and it really spoke to me. So I, I pretty quickly got into meditating and, and Buddhism. And then at some point really threw myself into yoga, Ashtanga yoga, like you said, I, I lived in India for a while and was studying there. And then, um, so I was doing all this stuff, like meditating, doing yoga, like eating an, an insanely healthy diet, like kind of an, an obsessively healthy diet, making sure I slept a good amount of time every night, like doing everything I could do. And I was just insanely depressed, like really to the point at some point, I I thought I wasn't suicidal, but I thought if this is all there is for the rest of my life, like it's not really I'm not really that interested in doing it. Like, what is the point of this? Um, and I felt like I had exhausted like every avenue. You know, I was always and in having therapy. known you, yeah. For some of those years, I feel like it, it it was like watching you being kind of followed by this, like a big dog, you know, like that, that dog being depression, yeah. <laughs> like every time you stopped yeah. moving, it would sit on you, you know? And it was like, there's this yeah. one thing, like it was, you know, as, as I, you know, I, I'm, I'm incredibly fond of you <laughs> and, you know, you could kind of like be great at your art and have relationships with awesome people and, you know, like be a great dad and like, you know, have, have rich and meaningful friendships and like, and do all of the stuff, you know, like do the recovery stuff, do the yoga stuff, do the meditation stuff, do the healthy diet stuff, exercise, like, and you know, at a certain point, like I hear you, the dog wouldn't stop following you. Yeah. And I, and now sitting, sitting here in hindsight, I, I, I can see what the, what the kind of mechanisms and framework was for that. But out of desperation, I, I don't know how I landed on this, but somehow ayahuasca came into the, the, into my sort of on my radar, um, and it truly was, it, I, I was thinking about it for a couple of years and then like always running it by a therapist and then running it by, of course, like lots of other 
people in recovery and generally people would say you can't do that. Um, and really uh, absolutely like out of desperation, I just went on the internet and found a center in Peru and thought, I'm, I'm just going to go do it because I have nothing left to lose at this point. And it really was, um, like a conscious decision of I might be really messing up like all of my recovery work, all of that stuff, but I just don't know what else to do at this point. Yeah. I mean, so then I went, yeah. I, no, as somebody in recovery, I think prior to kind of observing, like not just hearing, but like observing your experience with that, like watching you like, have access to joy for the first time since I've known you as a result of this process. It was like, I think I would, would have been like kind of an AA fundamentalist naysayer <laughs> to any kind of psychedelic yeah. as, you know, I mean, me too. treatment. Yeah. And like, I mean, and then, and that's, you know, like I, there, I'm planning on putting a kind of disclosure at the beginning of this episode being like, if this makes you uncomfortable, I get it. <laughs> like choose a different episode, but at the yeah. same time, like to have, to, to have watched you have such a transformation as a result of this process is like, what a gift, you know? Cause like who wouldn't want to see somebody that they care about, you know, have joy <laughs> or access to. It. Yeah. And it, it, and it is hard to talk about with, um, like I generally don't, I would never initiate the conversation anyway with anyone in recovery. And I'm pretty careful of the way I, I talk to people in recovery about it. Cause I realize it can be really, can really tweak people's um, belief systems and things that probably are like scaffolding for holding them in place and having a having a good life. But for me, it was like, yeah, that first ayahuasca ceremony, like going up there, like to drink the ayahuasca. And trust me, my my thoughts right as I drank it were like, well, there goes all my clean time. Like, oh. I'm, kind of fucked now and then all that, that stuff about like heartbreaking like how did that feel um it's definitely it's a it, it it was a loss that I had already been kind of mourning before I went down there like I wanted to acknowledge a hundred percent what I was doing and I I think weirdly to people don't buy into this kind of narrative of um so I know, especially in California, I think this has been a big trend of people doing like what, what we'll just call like plant medicine in recovery and, and having this kind of workaround that's like, um, you know, it's, these things aren't drugs. It's somehow like an outside issue or something like that. But I actually don't believe that. Like it, I, my belief is it's actually not compatible with those programs. Yeah. And so it's about, and you can say, (laughs) yeah. And people like the story about like Bill W was doing all this stuff and friend who's (laughs) writing a book and, and apparently like, you know, Bill W is taking all kinds of drugs because it was the time of like better living through chemistry. And all these doctors were like, thought were convinced that like, oh, you can take this thing in the morning and you'll have a productive day. Then you take this thing at night and you can go to sleep and whatever. Um, 
but that has nothing to do with the way that these programs grew and what they developed into and where where they are now and they're based in abstinence and if you're going to do this thing what i see is people doing something like ayahuasca and it's part of their life and they're in recovery but then you have to hide it from the people in your recovery groups and that seems really problematic to me yeah like I think you're right to be hiding something like that, that especially if it's that, if, if it's that big a component of your life, then you shouldn't be hiding it from anyone. Well, or um, that like we, as I think the, the structures of 12 step or mutual aid is that it like, it can't, it can't come from shame and it can't come from dishonesty. Right. So if like, right. if there's even the vibe, there might be kind of incongruency between taking a plant, substance to change your state of being which is like that's one track you know but it's a different track than an abstinence track like fundamentally yeah right um but i also do now in hindsight i think like well then why was then why are and i know there are people in those programs that don't believe it's okay but like why is something like a prescribed ssri okay because a pharmaceutical company made it and a doctor with credentials made it, which is this very like colonial patriarchal way of managing healthcare. Like, does that, is that, cause that is the thing that legitimizes it. I mean, I, I would maybe, I think that like whenever I talk to people about it, like <laughs> full disclosure, I'm a DJ, not a doctor, but that idea of, um, yeah. of, like mind altering substances that like you can't really, you can't really, why it doesn't feel like you're watching it work in the same way that, you know, having a, an experience with ayahuasca or even the experience with something like weed would feel right. That like, I, I know if I'm taking a benzo, I know if I'm taking uh, a painkiller, it's kind of an immediate result. Whereas if I'm taking an SSRI, it takes a couple of weeks before I, well, while I don't enjoy it, <laughs> you know, for yeah. it to kind of have any effect. But I mean, like, Again, not a doctor, and I do think, like, if to the listeners who are like just freaking out over this conversation, like, I love you. Talk to your sponsor. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I am kind of to to get back on on a easier easier <laughs> route. I do wonder kind of what your experience yeah. was after that fast, like after you kind of surrendered this thing that you know you've been building for many years in terms of your your idea yeah. of like self in recovery. Uh, what happened? Yeah, this was um, this is the kind of thing that's really difficult to talk about with people in recovery, and I I I, I generally don't do it just out of respect. But the truth is, um, it actually was incredibly liberating because what I then you know I had this really transformative experience at a couple of really transformative experiences very very kind of cliched stereotypical like ayahuasca experiences that are so mundane which is like the first one you know as i'm terrified like there goes my recovery drinking I, like drinking this ayahuasca then i go and sit on my mat and then proceed to have this experience of of just like 
universal love. Like everything is made out of love. That's the fabric of reality. Kind of that's the answer to everything. It was this thing I had never felt in my entire life. Like, yeah, I, like I never felt it from my parents. I didn't, it, it just is a thing that conceptually I knew about, but I had never experienced. So I experienced that for the first time. And then the next night, like the next ceremony, like I was like, this is single-handedly the greatest day of my life, which I, I still think of it as being that. Then the next night, the exact opposite. Like I was up, a facilitator had to stay with me, up with me to the next day. I was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And it was this absolute like activation of like every trauma, every trauma. I had ever experienced, <laughs> like every single one, like just vibrate, literally vibrating with like just trauma exploding out of me. Um, but when I left that center, I was like, it was a combination of um, being excited about knowing that I had this path that I could start to heal myself on and being really nervous that of the story that I heard, which was this whole thing of like, oh, even when you're clean, like your addiction's doing push-ups in the hallway is what they used to say. They say stuff like that now. No, now they um, say it's like sitting so in a chair, like taking notes about recovery so it can use it against you yeah. later. <laughs> right. All that stuff, which all that kind of mind game stuff. And when it didn't happen, it was incredibly liberating because for me, I realized I had been living in this fear most of my life that I would tell people, like anyone that was close to me, like, look, like if I ever relapse like i'll be dead within a couple weeks like you know I'll, I'll probably like have a needle in my arm immediately like something will be triggered and i'll be unstoppable um which i think for you know we see it that to be true for many which is also a scary thing yeah. right like, I, yeah. wish it, I wish it wasn't such a like shocking and appalling uh yeah percentage of humans with who struggle with addiction where that would actually be the case yeah. And who knows why? And it's not, and it's like, that's why I don't advise anyone to do what I did, but, um, but you were, yeah, also then it just kind set of, me on this. Like, if, correct me if I'm mistaken, but I recall that you were also kind of being followed. Like you were following this process therapeutically. It wasn't just you like going to Peru Absolutely. by yourself. Like you were kind of in a program no. that was facilitating this experience for you, which probably really helped. Yeah. And I, and I had a, um, a therapist that worked with the stuff and was, a is also like an addiction counselor who worked with people having plant medicine experiences. So he was like a the perfect combination of, of the stuff. So I could sort it all through with him, but it just provided this kind of framework for, um, for, I don't know, for a kind of transformation that. I just didn't get through 12 step programs, but I mean, or it sounds like any no, other, no route. fault of them. Yeah. yeah I mean, also anything like... else, whatever, whatever, <laughs> nothing. Yeah. It's not, it's not the fault of any of those things. Like none of them. It just, it's just, um, 
yeah, I don't know. It's just what I needed. And how has your kind of, I'm curious about the, like how this, how that experience kind of shot you, you know, we talk about being rocketed into the fourth dimension, but like what, what unfolded in your life, your life in terms of like your career, your relationships, your relationship to self and like body and sex, like how did that change as a result of this experience or like, how is it continuing to evolve as a result of this being, being on this path? Well, everything, everything changed. Like it felt to me like, um, like I was now starting my life. Like actually like my, my music career shot through the roof. Like it, um, because I was able to be creative in a way, like in a really free way that I couldn't access before. But so much of it was about my body. Like I hadn't, now what I know about the nervous system is that I had absolutely dissociated from my body most of my life and retreated into my head. And I, I, I had no idea what that meant until these experiences taught it to me in a firsthand way, what that means. And understanding the way that, um, yeah, like all these traumas live in the body and that all those years of talk therapy, for example, like a lot of talking, a lot of talking that didn't ever seem to actually put a dent in how I felt. This was a way of bypassing the mind and, and sort of like going into the body. And then these things would be released and then using the mind to kind of sort out what was happening. And if that makes you, sense. I mean, yeah. And it also sounds like kind of like, like the spiritual experience that you were seeking via addiction, especially like in the embodied sense, like I'm in pain, please let me not be in pain. Like you were able to process it and release it in a way that like changed your life. Yeah. And it also set me on this path of um, what I realized had been missing from my life, like my whole life really was, um, was basically community, which, you know, I was always involved in like music communities. And, and this is actually something where I think is the most beautiful part of 12 step programs is having like a community where you can really just show up any way that you want um, and be accepted and supported by people. Um, yeah, I think I for, was living such a sort of isolated, lonely, alienated life. It was, it, 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 especially alienation from my own body. Um, and this like really brought me into my body. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about Cardea? So uh, that's a really complicated thing. <laughs> okay, cool. We can mix that question and just talk to like how your kind of ceremonial practice has kind of influenced your music or vice versa. Um. 
Well, as a sort of psychedelic facilitator, it's it's a, it's a matter of you know guiding people in an altered state with sound and music, which is kind of what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like that's why precisely what you're trained that's, for <laughs> forever. Yeah, I think that's why I why I took to it. it it's actually. I think it's the most the most common facilitator in that world, especially in ayahuasca, is like someone with an addiction problem goes to the jungle, doesn't come back for a couple of years. Uh, sorry, a musician. Musicians with addiction problems go down there, changes their life. They sit down there and then they come back, and it, they're just you're just so so primed to do that work because um, it's always about sound and music every ceremony that psychedelic ceremony is sound and music are the most important part but it also yeah for me it i'm at this point where um i'm actually viewing a lot of this stuff what i'll call the world of like self-help healing world psychedelics world um, there's so much emphasis on, on me and like trauma and it's like going inward and like my traumas, my traumas, my childhood. It, and it's a very medicalized way of explaining, uh, of even like pathologizing, um, pathologizing people and, I think it really, I think it's a very neoliberal capitalist way of viewing health, which is this very, um, thinking of all of us as these very separate atomized, you know, individuals walking around and everything's, everything's about me basically. And it, to me, it's, um, you know, you can endlessly talk about your, your trauma and there's a, there's another, I just don't think we thrive unless we're in honest community with other, other people. I think that's where healing takes place. Again, like the beauty of 12 step. Yeah. I think that's what we really got right in, in that model. And it sounds like it's what you're kind of accessing in, in this chapter and also kind of what separates this, this new experience that you're having from one that could kind of be marketed to you as an individual. It's like, no, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual and, and communal sense of, of healing each other, yeah. not just like getting healed. <laughs> like, I don't, yeah, as you say, kind of pathologizing the wound. So it's about me, <laughs> not like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, although it feels exciting because it does also seem like there's more and more literature and, and notions around the addiction being, you know, a response, like an a, a totally reasonable response to living in a culture that is, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> white supremacist capitalist. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the same for um, what we call depression and anxiety. It's they that's my fear in doing this work is um, am I just sort of tr assuaging people's 
immediate pain, their depression and anxiety, so that they can just go back into the same fucked up system that is traumatizing all of us at the same time. Essentially, helping people just to be good workers and consumers. Or are depression and anxiety actually perfectly natural responses to this the system that we're living in right now? I mean, can it be both? It's like, it's also very difficult to change the system from a place of depression and anxiety <laughs> or active addiction. Yeah. And you, and you always treat suffering. Like, it's, you know, you always treat suffering when, when it's in front of you. Um, but there needs to be a, a recognition that this way that we're living is totally insane, especially now from, uh, I approach all of this in a larger framework of that. I believe we are, have, we've already set sail with some kind of extinction of the human race with what we've done to the climate. And even if we stopped everything right now, like stop driving cars, stop all pollution, it would still be pretty fucked. Like we've fallen off the cliff. And the fact that, you know, we still, like this is, this is the hardest part for me coming back from the jungle actually, is like being launched back into this world where people are still like, like, like we live in such a decadent society, like the amount of TV shows we have at our disposal, the amount of like substances to, to alleviate pain, the amount of like just the entertainment industry. Um, there's so much distraction. Um, and meanwhile, it's, you know, we, we, we're, we're like heading charging headfirst into absolute collapse and disaster yeah the whistling in the dark but you know it i don't know i, I feel like the, the question then becomes like how to hold both because i also think that 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 attitude is like well yes of course who wouldn't feel terrible anxiety and depression and want to like you know slam the, the biggest speedball possible while there's yet time you know so how to kind of reconcile yeah. the reality of like imminent extinction and the desire to like live in community and be of service to others you know i think that's the answer i think be uh, actually being of service to others is one of the pathways out of all of this I, I do like in, in terms of gender, I actually do. It is a very gendered process to me of not to keep invoking capitalism, but do it. it kind of, <laughs> I, I do. This expression of capitalism is like, it's, it's hyper masculinity, like gone so awry of like, um, more, more, more bigger, harder consumption. Faster. Yeah. Treating the earth like an endless, resource ATM that's inexhaustible. Um, and also just deeper things like there's so much talking and so little listening, you know, like everybody yelling at each other, which is a very masculine, like talking is an outward projection. Listening is a very feminine, like receptive 
state. Right now it's like both, like sort of politically, it's like two sides that are so activated, kind of yelling at each other. Mm. Um, yeah, just feeling this, <laughs> this, this sprint towards destruction that we're on. Yeah, I, but it's like <laughs> you say that, and like, and I hear you, and I feel you, and I, I don't, I can't help but kind of also feel like one must imagine Sisyphus happy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this. You must imagine what Sisyphus happy, you know, this idea of like, yeah, if the boulder's going to come back down on uh, down the hill anyway, might as well like enjoy the like at least get to the point where it's possible to enjoy the process. Um, of being alive, even as the world burns. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's always the answer, though. That's that's the funny thing is we're always you are headed towards extinction the moment you were born. You know, it's also this this like pathological fear of death is also a big component of this. Oh me. yeah. Yeah. Um, or that some, like I don't know. I feel like it's like a function of this idea the idea that you can be sold a cure <laughs> for like being alive kind yeah. Of. um yeah i mean but yeah you're gonna say i um i feel like i'm i get served up articles every once in a while that are like about how we we've almost solved the problem of death <laughs> i don't think people really really play out what that would be like to not to not die but it's just but our refusal to to accept it as just part of the natural process i mean it's funny though because i I watched (laughs) on a plane i watched a documentary about steve aoki and raymond kurtzfile the father of futurism both being obsessed with like essentially bringing people back to life because they were both super traumatized over the death of their fathers. <laughs> it was the strangest, yeah. <laughs> it was the strangest documentary, but this idea of like, if we, if we can't live in a society that can like embody feelings like grief, you know, or like yeah. acceptance of the discomfort of like growing old, then we are so fucked. <laughs> like yeah. it's going to be a, a shitty and miserable way down. And I mean, what you were talking about in the beginning about like being a community elder. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm kind of entering that space also and, and feeling grateful for it. <laughs> like feeling a lot of peace as opposed to like the need to fight for, it to be like young and hot and relevant. <laughs> that yeah. um, Like the only way out is kind of, is the only way out peacefully is through all of that shit. But like, it is deeply uh, it, 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 there's a dissonance between that and kind of the, the culture that we're sold, but in every fucking second on every platform. <laughs> well, every it's, it's all, I don't even know if you call it culture anymore. It's all expressions of capitalism, which is aimed at 18 to 25 year olds, <laughs> you know, like they're the, <laughs> the consumers. That's, that's, they're the consumers. So then, yeah, in, in other cultures, as you got older, you were more revered. But somehow we're at this point where you're at best considered a nuisance as you get older. Um, but it's really interesting, like, you know, being a DJ, which is 
still engaging in this, I guess, youth culture of dance music, which I always thought extended, you know, beyond that, that uh, demographic, 18 to 25 year old demographic. I hoped. <laughs> um, you think, you, because you're like, why would, if you love music and you love dancing, like why would you not want to go and be around other people and dance to music? Like, why would that be something you, <laughs> yeah, because it's, there, there, there's that part, which is, a, is, is a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get it all the time. Like, I, I mean, I, I am on the receiving end of this pretty regularly and you really don't notice or see it until you get there. And I'm pretty surprised. Like, I feel like ageism is not something like, it's just not a, just not a cool thing to talk about or anyone wants to address or anything. It's pretty far down the list. (laughs) But I mean, I do think, I don't know, again, because I like, it definitely exists, but also I think it's so much like, I can't be shamed for something that I am neutral around, you know, as neutral as like the passage of time. Although I do have to say, I think you share this experience that like recently having kind of moved to the middle of nowhere, it feels much less, I feel much less aggressed by the fact that like time is passing (laughs) and that like, as a result, I'm becoming older because it's just like, I remove myself from the, a space where, you know, there's so many reflective surfaces that I'd be confronted with my own (laughs) like disintegration. Um, and that's nice. (laughs) I, I like be, yeah. becoming one with the forest. Like I was like, thirty-seven is young for a tree, baby. <laughs> it, it, it's. I mean, think about it. I, I mean, the life of a tree. It's like how many generations do they see <laughs> human beings going by? Um, but it does come up all, all the time. I, I I was doing a like I was doing a boiler room a few years ago, and I was sitting out standing there waiting to play because I was on next and this guy like this young like kind of like uh, name names just kidding <laughs> bro bro like bro <laughs> broy kind of dude and he's like he's like hey man it's so cool that you're here and i think i'm thinking like he's saying thank like, you oh you're juan <laughs> mclean you're about to dj i was like oh thanks man he's like he's like yeah yeah it's so cool like you know someone your age coming to something like this and i was like uh, Oh, yeah, thanks. Oh, man. And then he just really went at it, like, I think trying to antagonize me. Really? Um, and it was so gratifying just to say, excuse me, and then walk away and start <laughs> DJing. That's literally what happened. Yeah, but, oh, man. But, that must um, have been a deeply satisfying moment. <laughs> yeah. But I, I forget. I guess maybe it is weird. I don't know being in a club and being older i mean perhaps but i again like if we talk about a patriarchy then i feel like definitely like an ageism i think <laughs> like a women functioning in in uh you know youth culture like yeah i don't know i <laughs> remember i told my therapist like <laughs> when I turned 30 I was like well I guess I'm not relevant anymore blah blah blah. like no one no no one gives a fuck once you're past 29 he was like what are you talking about right Uh, yeah and I mean now I'm I'm I don't know I feel like I've gotten more kind of invisible even to myself in that sense like 
um, especially when it kind of comes to the male gaze. And maybe that's like great, <laughs> you know, like maybe it's not a bad thing to kind of feel, yeah, like e- to ease off the need to be the kind of front center, most attention paid. Um, especially in dance music where it's like, oh, there's so many, like we were talking again about this, the role of elder, like how do you, like how do I kind of pave a path for the people that come behind me as opposed to kind of needing to like feel threatened or cling to cling to scraps of, you know, attention or validation. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the, the experience of being a woman getting elder in that world is totally different because if you're male like there's almost like this there is this kind of reverence even of yeah like, people love his daddy <laughs> you're some kind of like leg- legendary dj or something you know from if, if you make it to that point but so the way that you look when you're like in your 50s or even 60s and you're a male and you're you're in those spaces um is acceptable, but if you're a, a woman in your you're in your fifties and sixties in those spaces, it's a totally different story. Yeah, you have to wear it in a different way. You, yeah, and I I don't really see it. There's not many doing it, but um, yeah, I think you're perceived in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, generally though, um, I mean, oh. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. I mean, it's, it's rough, but, or it can be like a joke, you know, I choose to like try and, and dance, um, dance with it as opposed to kind of fight against it. Cause I think, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not like you're going to stop and the alternatives kind of suck. <laughs> it's like being young. Yeah. That's <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Um, but it is, I, I, I do, I do, um, I did this talk at Nowadays, a club here in Brooklyn last week. And it was around, it was around um, like basically like ceremonial, ceremonial psychedelics and dance music culture, like sort of parallels that I see. And one of the things I was talking about was seeing that um, with addiction, of in these dance music worlds that I think people will, what I say is people will do like take a substance, usually like MDMA and go to a club and have actually like a really transformative experience, like transcendent experience, but then they want to have it again. So they do it again. And it's like diminishing returns every time. And they're having this experience, but they're not doing anything to kind of integrate it Monday through Friday. So if they're taking MDMA and having this, like, you know, they feel lonely and isolated. And now they feel like this overwhelming sense of connectedness to people and community. They're not changing anything in their regular life Monday through Friday. And they keep chasing this experience and then next thing you know, they're they're in trouble with some kind of substance. Yeah. But still wanting to engage in those spaces. Um, and that's like so that's an area that I'm really interested in working with people. 
Like the, I don't know. I'm not integration. Um, I think it's just now I'm just trying to have conversations with people about it. Um, I don't really have answers, but one thing is kind of like, I've been wondering if it's useful to have groups, you know, almost like buddy systems of people who like still want to go out and dance, but they don't want to be taking a substance, but they know they're having a problem when they walk into those spaces of left to their own devices that they can't stay away from it. Mm. I mean, I think that that definitely exists. And like, it seems like that there's more kind of conversations around like what sobriety or like what sobriety looks like without needing to be in recovery, if that makes sense. Like as an active choice as opposed to like an absolute necessity. (laughs) And that's cool. Yeah. Like I know that that there's kind of peer support for people who just like don't want to, who don't necessarily have a problem, but don't necessarily want to be, you know, doing drugs in the club or whatever. Uh, and it seems like it's yeah. like when you talk about the communal aspects that that's like the, always the key. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, unless you wind up with a bunch of nerds. Say, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but it also requires like, I don't know, there needs to be a reconfiguring of, I think of this entire dance music world and culture. I mean, basically it's, I mean, at the heart of it, it's, it's an alcohol sales place. Yeah. (laughs) Pyramid scheme. I mean, DJs get booked because they bring a lot of people in and you know, it's not like you book anyone. There's consideration to what kind of DJ you are, but you, it's how many bodies you can get in the door because that's who will buy drinks. will buy alcohol and make the club money. Well, and now kind of exploring the live space. It's such a different economy because of the lack of the kind of uh, sure, thing that people were going to get wasted <laughs> like if you if yeah. you, you know having toured with a band as opposed to having toured as a dj you know that the economy is very different and like therefore the the fees are very different um with live independent music yeah. than than clubs because the, the you're not selling drinks necessarily yeah i don't know how people do it in bands anymore actually but it's really hard. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Um, yeah, it's brutal. But let's we're we're coming up on the ninety minute mark, so I'm we're gonna w- wind down okay. and swiftly pivot into the lightning round. As much as I love this conversation, <laughs> and I'm so happy to catch yeah. up with you. Um, what is yeah. your favorite snack? <laughs> oh man! Wow. Especially having <laughs> returned from the jungle, what were you like? Damn, I can't wait to get on this airplane. Oh, it's, it's not. It's it's not. It's it's so. Uh, oh god, I, it's so boring. Do I it. think right now everyone's my like snack almonds. Is these, uh, <laughs> I know. I was gonna say cashews. Perfect. A delicious. It's actually um, these <laughs> these these um, peanut butter pretzels from Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, what is a track that pumps you up right now? Like uh, that's a really hard question. I know. <laughs> Just today. What's your favorite song today? Um, um, I don't listen to music anymore. If you had to play a DJ set like tomorrow, what would you be excited to play? Um, (laughs) 
God, oh, this seems, this is so dumb. I, I played something last week that was, um, who did it? Someone did this edit of I Feel Love, the sort of cliche Donna Summer song, but it actually never kicks in to the, oh, it's the singing solo. part. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, not Solax. No, they did a Sylvester uh, edit where that's the case. <laughs> yeah, and it you never kicks waiting. in. Yeah, you do, everyone's waiting and waiting, and it's just like waiting and waiting, and everyone's waiting to scream and waiting and waiting and waiting, and it just never comes. <laughs> so you yeah. like you like this dirty trick. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that was my favorite favorite moment of the night. <laughs> Just things to cheer myself up while I teach it. <laughs> no drops. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite way to downregulate at the end of a night? Oh, that's pretty easy. I, just reading. That's what I do every night. Me too. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> I read until I slap myself in the face with my Kindle. <laughs> and then I know it's time for lights out. <laughs> Um, yeah. um what uh speaking of reading what are you reading or watching um I, I don't really watch anything um trying to find the book that i have uh I, <laughs> i'm reading a book called <laughs> uh that's about um written by Yogananda that's about, it's a two, there are two volumes about um, Christ consciousness, which has nothing, nothing to do with Catholic Jesus Christ or anything. Not Jesus Christ, a different Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ as one incarnation of Christ consciousness and the, cool. um, <laughs> the similar similarities and in interleaving of Christ consciousness with, with Hinduism. I love you so much, Juan. <laughs> it's so exciting, my I know. I know. Like, I just, you're like, not, you're like cashews. Yeah, yeah cashews. Oh reading this two thousand page book about. <laughs> it's such yeah. a joy to tour with. Um, oh boy. Uh, uh, now, this is a question that you can take in any, whether it's intellectual or physical or emotional or creative. Yeah. What turns you on? Oh. Um, hmm. <sighs> being lost in music. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Uh, and finally, what do yeah. you like? Um, I love... Being out in nature, away from people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a beautiful way to end this episode, and like a full circle. You're like, excuse me, if I have not spoken to you. That's, a, well, that's <laughs> what I was reflecting back on. It's it's nothing against people. It's just being out in nature, away from human intervention. I hear you. <laughs> I'm on the same yeah. page. I love you very much, Juan. It's so nice to catch oh, up. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so, much so much for having me. Yeah. No, it's a pleasure. Anytime you want to come back and talk about what you're doing or just continue to to discuss yeah. how how we overthrow white supremacist capitalist patriarchy I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Creativity.
Got a spiritual growth. Summer, sex, you'll never get bored. Summer, 